All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 22, please. Luke chapter 22, we're going to look at verses 39 to 46. And the message is entitled, Victory Through Prayer. Often when a person knows death is near, that person desires to be with and to talk to those closest to him. And so it was with Jesus as he enters uh, the Garden of Gethsemane here in our text. He enters with his disciples to pray to his father. The plot to kill Jesus was underway already. The beginning of the chapter tells us the fulfillment of the Passover, its new meaning had been instituted. And Peter's denial had been predicted personally to Peter by Jesus Christ. And the Lord warned the disciples of the difficult times to come. Now, the Lord being exceedingly sorrowful, goes to prayer, anticipating his death, which is described by three things. Let me read verse 20, or 39 to 46. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as, was, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Lord, being exceedingly sorrowful, goes to prayer, anticipating his death. And it's described by the following three things. First, we have the Lord's place of prayer, 39 and 40. Second, we have the Lord's passion in prayer, verse 41 through 44. And thirdly, the Lord's perspective through prayer in verse 45 and 46. The Lord's place of prayer comes first, 39 through 40. Notice the Lord Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Verse 39, the beginning. It says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed. The statement coming up, as you know, is connected to what has preceded. It refers to the upper room where Jesus just instituted the uh, New Testament and the Passover through the communion service of the New Testament. He was fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies. He stated that his body was broken for us. His blood was uh, the, the, new, the sign of the new covenant, the token as a remission of sins, the new covenant. And that it was for both Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. There was no longer to be a separation. Um, after they had sung a song, we are told by the other synoptics, Matthew 26, 30 and Mark 14, 26, that they went out, uh, they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now all of this followed the protocol of the steps of the Old Testament Passover and everything, the Exodus. But then he 
transitioned it to the meaning of the New Testament, but they still sung the songs and went through the steps that they did. Now, the Mount of Olives was close to the temple, if you've been to Jerusalem with us over in Israel. Uh, it's on the east side of the city, and as you go out the east gate, if you go down, then you cross the, the uh, Brook Kidron, and then you are in the Mount of Olives region. Uh, John 18.1 describes it for us in that location. Jesus gave um, the Mount of Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the signs of his coming at the end of the age for the second coming, Matthew 24, Mark 13, from the Mount of Olives. Jesus also descended from the Mount of Olives for the triumphal entry, if you remember, in, Matthew, in 19 of Luke that we saw, verse 37 and 40, as he came in the triumphal entry as Messiah, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. So the Mount of Olives plays a very important part. And Jesus went to Bethany this last week, only on Palm Sunday, we're told by Matthew 21, 17. Luke tells us, uh, as he did in chapter 21, verse 37, that this last week, Jesus taught in the temple openly during the day, but at night he went out of the city and he stayed in the mountain called Olivet, Luke 21, 37. The specific area of Manavalas is familiar to Jesus, it says here. It's a place where he was accustomed to go. The place is called Gethsemane, which means olive press. Matthew uh, 26, 36 and Mark 14, 32 give us that information. Again, putting the synoptics, it's a complementary added piece to see the whole picture. There's never a contradiction. Um, these kind of gardens usually belong to wealthy people, uh, whether it be in the Mount of Olives or other regions. And perhaps, um, possibly this man was a friend of Jesus, perhaps even a disciple. And he allowed him and his disciples to just resort there whenever they were in the city. John tells us Jesus' disciples often resorted to the garden and Judas knew its location in John 18, 1 and 2. Now, as you look at the material for the Passover, Judas didn't know where the Passover was taken because he sent Peter and James and, and, and John and them. But he was very accustomed to this. And, and we're going to see at the end of this passage, the transition is Judas comes with all those to arrest Jesus. He knew exactly where he would be. The disciples followed him. Notice the eleven were with him. And again, Judas Iscariot would be coming very, very soon in verse 47 and 48. Now, notice the Lord Jesus arriving to the Garden of Gethsemane instructed the disciples to pray. He says, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus was um, a constant example of prayer to his disciples. In fact, Luke records for us eight different occasions. We did a study on it. Let me just mention them to you. The first was at his baptism in Luke three twenty-one through 22. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased hear him, obey him. The second was in Luke five fifteen through 16. When the ministry of Jesus became uh, so overwhelming and the demands that he goes to the Father... Again, an example that he trusted the Father for everything and he drew from the Father when, when things became very difficult. And then thirdly, in chapter 6, 12 through 16, he prayed all night for the choosing of the twelve to be 
his apostles. In the fourth, in chapter 9, 18 through 20, it was at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus went out to pray alone, and then he asked the disciple, who do men say that I am? Where Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, your name is Peter's. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father in heaven. Upon this rock I will build my church. And so there again, his time alone, waiting on the Father. The fifth is the Mount of Transfiguration, where he reveals his glory. In Luke um, 9, 28 through 36, there Peter, James, and John saw Elijah and Jesus glorified. He really, literally saw a preview of the second coming. Um, and that was the prayer there. And the sixth, after the seventy had returned, that he gave thanks to the Father for those who had been saved in Luke 10, 21 through 22. The seventh it was when the disciples asked him, Teach us to pray in Luke 11, 1 through 4. And they admired him. The eighth is here our text in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's about to submit to the difficult, the difficult will of God. Now, Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for the trial about to come upon them. That's why he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here is the greatness of our God. In the most intense and most difficult point of his ministry, he's first of all considering the benefit of his apostles and disciples. He's looking out for them. What an example to every shepherd who, pulpit, who stands behind a pulpit, who declares himself to be called of God, that he cares for the people of God, that he not abuse the people of God. That he puts the people of God before him. What an example to us. It is amazing to me. Prayer in its most simple form is dependence on God completely. Aligning ourselves with the will of God. Listening and obeying God's will. They were expecting Jesus to set up the kingdom as you know. They uh, disputed who was the greatest at least three times as recorded. In Matthew 18, 1, Mark 9, 34 and Luke 9, 46. And then Jesus in John 13, as you know, there at the Last Supper, the conversation was probably the same, that he took a bowl and a towel and began to wash their feet. And he says, I'll show you guys who's the greatest. The one who serves. Wow. And yet he's under the shadow of the cross. He's going to institute the communion service, the New Testament. And yet he's concerned about them once again. James and John, you remember, had petitioned Jesus for the right hand and left hand in his glory. Even having their mommy go with them in Matthew 20, 21 and 22 and Mark 10, 37. They had sensed the elation of the triumphal entry in Luke 19 and 11. They were ready for it. They didn't have no idea. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen you as a parent, you see certain things with your child as they're going to school or they're going here. And, and you know the, the, the difficult time they're going to have. And, and, and you're trying to prepare them without freaking them out. You're thinking of them. And when they're at school, you're nervous. You're praying this and that because you're thinking of them. You're not thinking of you. This is Jesus. They were out to be devastated as Jesus would be arrested and their entire world will collapse before them. 
Ever been there? If you haven't, be patient. You will. And it's good that you be there. All would abandon Jesus. Peter would deny him three times. They would enter into temptation. The word means trial, approving of fidelity, integrity, virtue, constancy of man. It can be an enticement to sin, whether it rises from within or whether it's enticement from without. Either way. Prayer. Daniel had an upper room in his house in Daniel 6.10. He opened his window towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day, as was his custom since early days, it says. The Mount of Olives is an important location in Scripture, as you know. Solomon had built for his pagan wives some temples there to their pagan gods in Second Kings 23.13. It's called the Mount of Corruption at that time <laughs> because of what Solomon did. Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. As the disciples looked up in Acts 1, 9 through 12, the angel says, why do you men stand here gazing up the very same way that Jesus left? He's going to come back. When Jesus returns with his church, he will come to the Mount of Olives Zechariah 14.4 says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making the very large valley. Half of the mountains shall move towards the north and half towards the south. And torrents of water will gush forth, some to the Dead Sea and revive it, and others to the Mediterranean. It will be in the Mount of Olives that his foot will touch. Prayer is an essential part for the believer for their communion with Jesus. Each of us need to have that place of prayer that's regular, that we're accustomed to. It might be in the morning or before you leave home that you have this chair that you sit on. It might be your very driving time that you pray as you're going to work if you drive alone. If you drive with Christians, you can have a prayer meeting on the way to the church. But whatever it is... And without being legalistic, though we pray all the time in an attitude of prayer, we do have times that we do just sit up on Lord, work. We should be accustomed to do that. Um, otherwise, we, um, we can start just living on our own um, abilities and strength. Each of us should not limit prayer also to when there's problems and despair. Otherwise, I'm really acting out the way I used to live as a pagan or as a religious man. As I was raised a Catholic, whenever I went to God, because I was in trouble. I knocked on the door of the trouble closet and I said, Lord, if you, and I didn't call him Lord. I said, God, if, if you get me out of this, I'll do this, I'll do that. And then when I got out, I was it. I just waited for the next crisis. And so... We have to be careful that prayer is a privilege and that it's not just for crises or for difficult times or times of distress. First Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18 says, Pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the Lord's place of prayer was well known. 
But notice, secondly, the Lord's passion in prayer comes in verse 41 through 44. In 41, the passion of Jesus is marked first by solitude. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, it says. He separated himself from his disciples about 25 to 30 feet of stone's throw. Sufficient space to have privacy with the Father due to the agony before him. It's a very serious time. Jesus always prayed with the Father alone. We have no record in Scripture that Jesus ever prayed together in a group form with the disciples or apostles. He never said with them, our Father. uh, But he always said, my Father and your Father. He had that special relationship with, with his Father. And he took that time alone. In fact, Matthew 14, 23 says, And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. It's good for you and I to be alone sometimes with the Lord. Apart from our wives, our husbands, all commotion, whatever it may be. Or or I hear him, where I just wait upon him, where I just worship him, where I just rest in him completely. The other Gospels give us more details. Uh, Matthew 26, 39 through, 37 through 39 says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, but he still separated himself with this from them. So Luke omits different things. So if we put them together, Jesus got there. He separated himself. He took James and John, and he was separated from, you know, three from 11 means eight. Eight were behind. He took the three, and then he separated himself from them. Matthew tells us we get a better picture. Mark 14.33 just tells us that he took Peter, James, and John. He omits that Jesus went away from them. So again, there's no contradictions. It's a, it's a different pieces of the picture so you get a full picture. Um, no policeman would ever believe that there was a contradiction in five witnesses who gave five different accounts from five different vantage points of an accident that happened. If you put them all together, he would know exactly what happened. He would never say, well, that's a contradiction. It's just an added piece of the puzzle. Now, notice the passion of Jesus is marked by humility next. And he knelt down to pray. Kneeling to pray indicates his respect and reverence for his father. Kneeling to pray before the father speaks his dire need and supplication that's going to be presented. It presents Jesus as looking up to the one and the only one that can meet his need. Sometimes I and you are not thoroughly convinced that God is the only one that can meet our need. So we'll try everything else and last of all we'll say, well, I might as well pray now. When it should be the very thing I do. Once again, the Gospels give us added details. Matthew twenty six thirty nine tells us Jesus fell on his face, magnifying the intensity of this occasion. Once again, no contradiction. Jesus began praying on his knees. Possibly as he's on his feet walking. Then on his knees. Now he's on his face. Due to the intensity of this moment. Placing his face to the ground. Have you been there alone? Not to do it in public where people say, Ooh, dude, he is righteous. We used to use that phrase in the 60s. Righteous, dude. We didn't know what it was talking about. But those private times when it's you and God and, 
And God knows your heart. And God knows your heart if you're standing worshiping God in public and you're worshiping Him. But He sees you on your face because He sees your heart. He's not like man. Mark 14.35 says that He fell to the ground in total abandonment. We see the progression Kind of like those cartoon characters where they, the real artists before used to do it in sections. And they flip it. It takes so many pictures to make one, two, or three, four frames. Now everything's with computers. But here we're getting different frames of this. Jesus is prostrated on the ground now. Total abandonment to the Father. Now the caution is that we don't conclude that physical posture indicates the right attitude or the right heart. Once again, you can be on your face and God sees you standing proud. So the whole thing is that it's, it's me and God. It's no one else. And it's my love for God that draws me. That has to be the paramount thing that motivates me in life. Love for God. Not love for you. Not love for my wife. Not love for my children, not love for myself, but my love for God. Then I'll be able to love my wife, you, my children, and everything else. Notice next the passion of Jesus is marked by conflict. Listen to the word saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What is meant by the cup? Some say it means Jesus was afraid he would die before he went to the cross by the hand of Satan. Well, there's nothing in the text that would ever suggest that at all. They usually use Hebrews 5.7 to confirm physical death, but it's absurd in context. For the word ek in that text means out from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. According to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 1610. So the context is wrong. Well intended, but it's wrong. Others say it, is, it was the fear of his death on the cross. And so we are focused on the agony and the difficulty and the horror of the cross. Yet Jesus knew from the beginning that he came to die for man, Matthew 20, 28. To give his life a ransom for many. Jesus declared his death and resurrection continually from the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi. He never shirked from it, and he always accompanied with his resurrection. Jesus said, except the corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit in John 12, 44. So, that he was afraid of the death on the cross really is negated by the very declarations of Jesus and his actions. The cup... Is nothing but the wrath of God. Psalm eleven sixteen, Isaiah fifty one seventeen, and Jeremiah twenty five fifteen, and others put punch in your computer. Cup of wrath. It's God's wrath. Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee, "Remember, are you able to drink of this cup I'm about to drink?" In Matthew twenty twenty two and Mark ten thirty three, when they asked for the right and left hand. The cup of wrath. The Lord Jesus, the Passover, took up the cup 
after supper and said, This cup is the New Testament. My blood, which is shed for you. His death was under the wrath of God for those sins on the cross. Luke twenty two twenty. What was the conflict? The conflict of Jesus is from his humanity. For Jesus was 100% man. 100% God as you know. Yet without sin. And he never used his deity to accomplish one thing. But as the perfect man, the last Adam, he depended on the Father to work through him all the time. So that you and I could never say, well, but he was God. No. He was God who became man. And as man, he depended on the Father so that you and I can do the same thing depending on him through the Father. Wow. Jesus was going to become sin for the world and the wrath of God would fall upon him while he was the epitome of holiness and without sin. Here's the real conflict. It's a spiritual problem. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Isaiah 53 is very clear on this. At times, too much is emphasized on the physical suffering, not to minimize it. But it's only the symptom of the cause. The problem is spiritual. Sometimes we forget that and we look at the physical and the problem is spiritual. We look to our nation, the disintegrating of our nation as society. We think our problem from the superficial point is economics, money. No, it's spiritual. We're broke physically because we are poor spiritually. The problem is spiritual. Psalm 22, 1, Jesus would cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. In a way that we'll never understand a mystery in itself. Jesus Christ, who was with the Father from all eternity, emptied himself of his glory, divested himself, took on flesh for a set time, but he was still in communion with the Father. But at the cross, he would be totally separated from God in a way that you and I cannot understand because he would become sin. And there would be such a violation, such a horrible thing to take place that we don't, we don't know how. We, don't, we can't explain it. But so much so that we're going to see some of the evidence of that physically. In our text in the next verses. Notice next the passion of Jesus is marked by loving submission. Verse 42 there at the end. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The obedience to the will of the Father <coughs> was submitted and yielded out of love. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated His love towards us, and while we were yet or still sinners, Christ died for us. Another passage says, For the ungodly, I presume we all qualify. It was His love for us. Nothing but His love. That was His motivation. But love alone could not do it. There had to be some actions behind it. My declaring that I love God is great, but then my actions have to confirm that I love God. He would die for the redemption of man, the Lamb of God, becoming sin and a curse. John 1, 29. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 
Galatians 3.13. After the model of the servant of the Old Testament, who after six years would be allowed to be released of his debt, but if you want to stay with his master, he would say, I want to serve you for life because I love you. And they would put a hole in his ear by taking him to the doorpost with an awl, and he would wear an earring, a bond servant, a slave for life because he loved his master. This was prophetic of Christ. Listen to Isaiah 50, verse 5. And the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. This is the crisis in the ministry of Jesus. This is the paramount affliction, if you will. But he was not rebellious, an obedient, loving servant. Linsky, the Greek scholar, says the imperative being durative expresses the course of action, not a mere single act, but the act of decision followed all along. Praying is to align him here with the mind of God, not to change the mind of God, not for permission to exercise his will. And so with us, we don't go to prayer to change God's mind or to exercise our will. Philippians 2.8, Paul says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Obedience. You see, obedience is to be motivated by love. Mere obedience out of fear is not obedience. It's just that I love myself. I don't want to get hurt, so I obey. But when love is a motivating factor, that is the highest and the purest motivation for all action. Then notice the passion of Jesus is marked by strength in verse 43. Notice it's a progression. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This was an answer to his prayer in the previous verse, verse 42. The will of the Father, the submission of the Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that an angel appears here to Jesus is evidence of his weak, agonizing human nature. He was 100% man, just as you and I. We read often, Jesus ate, Jesus slept, Jesus tired. He bled on the cross. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels were told, evident by his weakness here in Hebrews 2.9. Allow me some liberty, if you will. Here's this angel, he comes down. This angel looks at Jesus. This angel has known Jesus in heaven from all eternity when he was created. And he served Jesus. And Jesus, who is God, the second person that God had emptied himself of his glory, he came down and he is seeing God in this agonizing position in the incarnation. And he, a mere angel, has been sent by the Father to strengthen the Son. Whoa. There, there must have been such a brokenness in that angel. Such a reverence in that angel. Hmm. The strength imparted to Jesus was from the Father. The angel was a mere vessel, an envoy. Notice the provider's strength brought the agony to the highest peak by virtue of not giving into it. 
but rather resisting it. So before things would get better, they got worse. You see, um, whenever we give into sin, we never experience the full strength of that temptation or trial because we give in short of the full potential of its strength. When we resist sin and are victorious to its full end, then we experience the full strength of that temptation and trial. We resist to the end. Jesus was strengthened to resist the full impact of this trial. Jesus says um, through Paul that God will never allow us to be tested more than we're able to give us a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's ever faithful. Notice in 44, the passion of Jesus next is marked by suffering. And being in agony, he prayed more earnest than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Whenever someone sees blood, they freak out. You know what I mean? The policeman arrives on the scene. They see blood. They're looking at the paramedic. Where, where's it at? It might be just that his nose was bleeding, but they see blood all over. They're looking, where, where's the entry? You know what I mean? Because they know blood's supposed to be inside your body, not outside. <laughs> the phrase being an agony in the Greek is called punctilio in the Greek, indicating reaching the peak of its agony. Involving the mental, the emotional, the physical, and spiritual distress. So don't separate. Don't say, well, it's just physical. No, it's your your whole being. Jesus was the last Adam, exactly like the first Adam, yet without sin. Hebrews gives us a commentary in Hebrews 2.17. says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words... Jesus becoming human, he is a merciful and faithful high priest because he has been tempted in every way as you and I are. You will never go to Jesus Christ and, 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 and say, Lord, and go, oh, you know what? I, I, I never went through that. Let, let me ask somebody up here. I'll, I'll get back to you. Never. He prayed more earnestly. And the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The phrase more earnest means intent. Intently. This is the only appearance in this form, an adverb. This confirms Jesus resisted the trial to the maximum strength by not giving in. Experiencing the ultimate power of this agony. You ever been there, that point where you just say, this got to stop. It's got to come to an end. Been there? Hmm. We all have. And I'll be there again. I don't like those places, but they're needful. The word drops, thrombles. Sound familiar? Medical term? Luke's a physician. (laughs) It means the large, thick drop 
clotted blood. The effect of the intense agony of going to the cross under the wrath of God caused his sweat to mingle with blood. The text says falling to the ground, not merely staining his skin. This condition is well attested to by doctors. Once again, Luke is a physician. The condition is called hematidrosis. When the tiny blood vessels of the skin rupture and permit blood to mingle with the blood. Aristotle, Theophrastus, Gunner recorded an entire medical recorded data on this subject in 1805. And if you go on the internet, you can punch it in. It will be there. H-E-M-A-T-I-D-R-O-S-I-S. Once again, Daniel illustrates passion and prayer as he ate no food for 21 days, seeking the mind of God in Daniel 10, 2 to 3. We need to be alone with God and humble ourselves before Him in prayer. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. The need of time. The need to hear His voice. But sometimes I go to prayer and I'm looking for me to hear God say what I want Him to say. I don't want to hear what He says. I, 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 I don't want to hear what he, I, I'm afraid He's going to say. And, and the problem is the condition of my heart. God will not let me slide. God will deal with me. He's faithful. Prayer is spiritual conflict and warfare always against Satan and his angels. You remember when Jesus was driven to will by the Holy Spirit in Luke 4.13 after the three temptations and victoriously. It says Satan left him till a more opportune time. If you think the guy with the red PJs is not going to come back. You're mistaken. He waits for opportune times. If you look at chapter 22, verse 3, 31, and others there, Satan's involved in this whole chapter here. Through the Pharisees, they're going to arrest him and put him to death. Prayer is spiritual. Spiritual conflict and warfare. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, bringing down the strongholds, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. Satan wants to drag you and pull you out in the arena so that you can take care of this with your weapons of flesh so your blood can be spilled on the sand. <laughs> You're no match. I am no match. I must use spiritual weapons. I will not be victorious otherwise. We have a divine nature, Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. 
All things have been given to us pertaining to life and godliness, precious promises to escape the corruption of the world. So I must use spiritual weapons. I must bring my thoughts into captivity. I must yield to new divine nature. And then I must put on the armor of God that Ephesians 6, 9 through 18 tells us, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord. The power is mine. Put on the whole armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, power, dominion of darkness, so on and so forth. Then he enumerates the armor one at a time. The last is verse 18. It's usually missed. Prayer. Prayer is part of the armor. The object of prayer is the will of God. You remember Saul? He knew the will of God. But he didn't want to do the will of God, and he didn't. Has the Lord, Samuel said, as great delight, telling him, in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice, and to, and to heed than the fat of rams. Listen carefully here. He's talking to Saul. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry. Whenever you and I as Christians do not yield to the will of God and we're rebellious, we're obeying a different spirit, not the spirit of God. Whether it be our own, whether it be the enemy, whoever it is. And it's witchcraft and idolatry. Pretty heavy. God's will and prayer will always result in death to the old man. Praise God, but I don't like it. The old man, he wants to live all the time. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. He says, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. So he destroyed him with power of death. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. So he destroyed him with that power, that he tasted death for me. And when I accept Christ Jesus, I am to die. I am to reckon myself dead, reckoning the old man. Romans chapter uh, 5.12 all the way to the end of chapter 8. That's the reckoning the old man section. He's going to come up every day. You've got to say, you can live or you better stay dead. You and I make that choice. I wish there was cruise control. There is no cruise control. I cannot push just a button. The evidence that you suffer, the evidence of the old man wanting to live means one thing. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, meaning in the body, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh, in this body, has ceased from sin. When suffering comes to my life, it's because it's evidence that I am dead. That I'm reckoning the old man dead. If I don't suffer, that means I'm giving in what's best for me. I please me. 
When I please the Lord and please others, it's going to bring pain and death. Because basically I'm selfish. The middle letter of the word sin is I. Now you know why all the Mexicans say, ay, ay, ay. I'm my biggest problem. Welcome to problem number one, Xavier. The Lord's passion in prayer was in great agony. What an incredible passage here. Notice thirdly, the Lord's perspective through prayer, 45 and 46. In 45, Jesus arose victorious now. All of a sudden, it's just like, what happened here? When he arose up from prayer, the intense agony was over, resolved and settled. The will of the Father became the will of the Son. He would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. The Son would bear vicariously the sins of all and die in their place. The Son would experience the wrath of the Father, be separated from Him for the first time, and die physically as a consequence of sin, a true actual payment for sin. The Son was victorious over the cross. Listen. In the Garden of Gethsemane, not at the cross. The victory came here. In the Garden. As Jesus was committed to the full consequence of the cross to save sinners by the atoning death on the cross and His resurrection. Listen to Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. It's a commentary on this passage specifically of uh, Gethsemane. It says, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with them and cries and tears to him. See, we don't realize it was tears. Here he's on tears uh, uh, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He heard him. He would deliver him from death. He would die physically, but he would raise him out from the dead in a glorified body. Evidence of the accepting of the payment and the payment in full. Wow. Jesus would be raised up from the dead and again rejoin what? In fellowship with his father. <laughs> John 17, 5, when Jesus prayed. And that's really the Lord's Prayer, John 17. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself in the glory which I had with you before the world was. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says, Who being in the brightness of, the, of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Have you ever bled resisting sin? <laughs> I haven't. I've never done that. Notice then Jesus recognized the weakness of his disciples. He comes full circle. His concern is his disciples more than himself. 
And had come to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Luke is the only one that tells us the reason why the disciples were sleeping from sorrow. When things are um, not going well with people sometimes, they get low and despondent. And when people are overwhelmed because of repeated things going wrong, sometimes they're overwhelmed so much that sometimes they don't want to get out of bed. As you're sleeping, you don't have to deal with the problems. The other synoptic gospels add details about the three occasions that Luke omits here. Again, getting the full picture. Matthew 26, 40 says, Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Mark differs only in the name Simon in Mark 14, 37. In Matthew 26, 43, it says, And he came and he found them asleep again, second time. Their eyes were heavy. Mark adds, and they did not know what to answer him, Mark 14, 40. And then Mark 41, and he came to them a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. You get the full picture of all that went on. Then notice lastly, Jesus gave them the secret to victory. You ready for it? Prayer. What a surprise. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Arise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus having gone through the agonizing struggle of doing the Father's will to be separated from him, knew how horrible their struggle would be by failing to pray. He knew it. You know the agonizing trouble that will come upon your child if he doesn't obey you in certain things. Because you've been there. Having bore his own burden, Jesus thinking of them. No one else. This is his darkest hour. And yet he's attempting to help his disciples. And they're coming test and burden. The warning is, lest you enter temptation. The word enter means you come into that sphere or condition of giving in to your will or desire rather than God's. It's almost like, like a circle, a certain line that once we cross, if we enter that temptation, if we're, we're within the boundary of the, the force of that temptation, it's almost like it's inevitable. If we don't stay with the limited parameters. Kind of like a magnet, you know, you, there's a certain resistance in the magnet and you're stronger than the magnet. But if you've got a magnet and a pole that is magnetically stronger than the, your pole, there comes a place where you can't resist and it wins. So you want to make sure you stay within the sphere of God's will. You don't want to cross over into the sphere of your will. Again, temptation means a trial proving of man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, or constancy. 
It can be an enticement from within, from without. Situation, circumstance, whatever it may be. Jesus has said to them this at the very beginning in verse 40 when they arrived at Gethsemane. He comes back with the same truth that he gave them when they arrived. Matthew 26, 41 and Mark 38 give us a fuller picture. Listen to the words. Jesus says, watch and pray, lest you enter to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He warns them, do not walk in the flesh, but in the spirit. Do not confront this in the flesh, but in the spirit. Whoa. If we deal with it physically and fleshly, we will end up fighting each other rather than being joined together fighting against Satan as husbands and wives, as the people of God. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 73 who was envious at the wicked. Their children never sick, their cows never have miscarriages, this and that, the following. And then verse 17 says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Prayer. Lord, I was a fool before you. I was like a beast before you. Who do I have in heaven besides you? Who do I desire on earth but you? There are slippery poles. They're ready to slip any minute. Forgive me for being envious at the wicked. Prayer opened his eyes. Brought him into reality. Prayer is like breathing air. It is essential. Through prayer, we can be victorious. Through prayer, we can guard our weaknesses. Through prayer, we can overcome temptations. Through prayer, we take precautions against our strengths, which could be double weaknesses. Through prayer, we can align ourselves with the will of God. Listen to 1 John 5.14. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The will of God is found in the Word of God. Nowhere else. Not in your emotions, not in your feelings, not in your circumstance. The Word of God. Prayer will bring you into intense spiritual warfare, by the way. At times, great agony before the victory. As you submit to the will of God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and let me close with this. We must confess our sins that plagues us that we run the race to win. First of all, verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Listen. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 1. Secondly, verse 2, we must follow the example of Jesus that he was going to be reunited with the Father. Looking at the Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who was, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, usually this second verse is interpreted to mean that the joy of Jesus over the salvation of sinners. But, I believe the... Context is wrong. 
The true context is that he despised the shame of the cross, but endured it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It's given to us there at the end of verse 2. That he would be sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, reunited with the Father. That's the joy. Not that people would be saved. Yes, we find that truth in other scriptures. But the context here, the joy set before him, he's going to be reunited with the Father. What did he pray in John 75? Father, glorify me with the glory which I had before the world was. He was going back to the Father. There's the joy. That's the context. Then in verse 3, we must consider Jesus who was sinless and the epitome of holiness of which I am neither. For consider him who endured such Hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Wow. He didn't call it quits. He's my example. He's my source of strength. Let's persevere in passionate prayer lest we settle for our own will. Let's be aware that prayer is to change me. Change my mind. Let's remember prayer is to strengthen us. Not to make life miserable. The Lord's perspective through prayer was to be victorious. That's what He wants. So the Lord, being exceedingly sorrowful, went to prayer anticipating his death here in the garden. Described by these three things, the Lord's place of prayer was well known. The Lord's passion and prayer was in great agony. And the Lord's perspective through prayer was to be victorious. Man, I am so glad Luke wrote his gospel. So glad. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness to us, Lord. We pray that you continue to deal with our hearts, that you cause us to be more like you. But Lord, help us to love you more, to appreciate you more, and the rest will follow. And so Lord, we thank you. Pour your grace out upon us, as in the early church, great grace, not to be permissive, not to be abusive, but to be more obedient out of love for you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. You might be over the internet. If you believe what you've heard about Jesus Christ this, in this sermon, then you you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that He is that one. And you can call upon Him and He will save you by grace through faith. This is your prayer to Him. That's how you come to Him, prayer. <laughs> and He will make you a new creature. This is your prayer to Him if you want to be born again. You can repeat it. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. 
I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.